mountain maker, ocean tamer, glimpses of you burning my eyes, the worship of heaven fills up the skies, you made it all, said let there be. In uh, chapter 2, verse 7, there's a sentence that says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How many times is that said in the book of Revelation? Seven. Eight. Oh, seven. I'll go with seven. Okay, let's close in prayer. (laughs) Now we all know it's seven times. Let me rehearse for you for a moment the messages that the Lord has brought to us as a congregation just since the beginning of the year. Community and involvement. There's a, there's a heartbeat of God. We were talking and singing in this song about, you know, we want to hear his heartbeat. What's God's heartbeat? And that is that we understand what community is and that none of us were made to be alone Even the very first couple in the Garden of Eden, God comes to Adam and says, it's not good for man to be alone. And uh, then the woman was created and they had that partnership in life. We see God demonstrating in in himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And we understand that triune God, God is one and yet expressed in these three persons of the Trinity. And because of that, we can assume and uh, actually not assume, but we can come to the conclusion of this. That if God were just one, then it, he could just be a dictator. If it was just the two, uh, father, son, then it would just be a partnership. And that would be the demonstration of how life should work. But because there are three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a perfect picture of community. Shared relationship. Koinonia is the Greek word in the New Testament for sharing life together, fellowship. And so we talked about community and our involvement in our community at large. After that, there was a message about reigniting our passion. And we looked at the history of Josiah and revival under his watch and as he came to be king at eight years old and by the time he was in his early 20s revival had and the purging of a nation and the correction of an entire nation had taken place and worship was restored and the communion if you will or the Passover was restored like never before and how we reignite passion in our own lives and we took some examples from that on how to fire up who we are in God We talked about this message that's up on the wall, mission. What's our mission? Our mission here is prayer, cells, and missions. And why aren't we a part of another church? Why don't we just, you know, take all that we have and put it into another congregation? Why were we ever brought to bear on this community as a separate congregation? And that is because God has a mission for us. 
And this is how it's simply defined. We're to be about prayer and cells and missions. And that specifically, every church ought to be about prayer. Every Christian ought to be about prayer, right? And uh, anytime you want to talk to a group of people, in case you're ever invited to speak to a group of people and you don't know what to say to them, but you want to make sure you have the edge, always talk about prayer. Because no one in the room ever succeeds. And you'll always have the advantage. Everybody will listen. Because everybody wants to know how to pray better. I've talked to people who pray six and eight hours a day, and what do they say? I don't pray enough. Everyone ought to be about prayer, but specifically part of our mission is cells, and that is to penetrate our community, to answer the gospel of go into all the world and preach the gospel, and rather than come, let everybody come to where we build a building, and everybody come to a big event, or uh, put on thing after thing after thing after thing, that people can come to to learn about Jesus. We're commanded by Jesus to go into all the world and preach. So we have organized this congregation by cell structure. And we believe that church happens in the cell just as much as it does here on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning in a celebration. That's our mission. We have three messages that follow that about making good decisions. And we included in that the, the point of making good decisions about your finances making good decisions about how you build relationships. And I know the Lord was very specific to turn us into a place of talking about our relationships in marriage. Making good decisions. Get fit and stay focused was following that. Being fit for the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be fit and not turn back? You know, not putting our hand to the plow and looking backwards. Being disciples of Jesus and and uh, being involved in the preaching of the kingdom. And I know for me it came to this conclusion that once we become believers in Jesus, once we accept Christ and he comes into our life, uh, there's really no other reason for you to be on the planet except to announce his kingdom. The one man said to Jesus, I'll follow you, right? But let me first go bury my father. Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead, but you go and preach the kingdom. The immediacy and the urgency of his call upon our life when we become Christians is to share Christ with other people who have not yet met him. And that's why we live. That's only reason. What you do for a living and how you make money only provides what you eat and wear and live and all those things that are necessary elements for living on the planet. But our purpose and our mission once we become believers is to announce the good news that Jesus has come into the world, demonstrated himself as the Son of God, took our sins in his own body and nailed them to the cross so that we could be free from our sin, free from the penalty and the punishment of our error and our distance from God and be reunited in relationship with the Father and be believers. Now, the benefit of that, of course, is eternal life rather than eternal separation from God, which he does not want. God is not running around the heavens with a big stick trying to knock people into hell. Saying, no, you sinned, boom, you're out. No, he's always looking to include. He's the loving heavenly father who's provided his own son as a sacrifice that by his death, burial, and resurrection, which we'll celebrate shortly coming Easter again, uh, worldwide, that through that proactivity of God, he has made a way for us to be in relationship with himself. And last week, Pastor Richard Murungi from Nairobi came and delivered the mail. And he gave us a message on what? Abiding in Jesus. 
living, abiding in Christ. And he slipped a message in on the side about Second Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, and forgive their sins, and heal their land. And I got some great notes on that message. And I hope that you understand, if you were here and you heard the message, if you didn't, you can listen to it on our website online. But understand that God sent an African missionary thousands of miles from his home at great inconvenience to himself and his family to deliver the mail. To you. This was not just another message that we could go home and say, wow, you know, four weeks from now we're talking. And, hey, remember when Pastor Richard was here from Kenya? Wasn't it great to see Richard again? He's been here twice now. And, and uh, boy, he just preached a great message, didn't he? I can't really remember what he said, but I know it was good. How many times have you said that about your attendance and at some service. I don't recall what they said, but boy, it was good. I remember being there and the atmosphere was nice and everybody was getting along and something great was said, but what what was it? Anybody else guilty of that? Okay, good. I'm not alone. It's okay. You know, I don't remember what I ate for dinner four weeks ago either. But I know it was good for me. And I know I'm still alive because I ate it. And that's the way messages are. Somebody said, oh, I'm not going to church anymore. I mean, 52 times a year and you hear a new message every time. You're supposed to do something new every week. And I don't ever remember what happened. And I think I'll just quit going. I said, well, I want to just quit eating too. Because you don't remember all the meals you eat, but it keeps you alive. Right? And God calls us to gather together and to hear his word preached. Abiding in Jesus. So, as I looked at these things, I said, I'm saying, what is the Spirit saying to the churches. That's why it started in Revelation. There are seven times in, in chapter 2 and 3, verse 7, verse 11, in chapter 2, verse 17. This isn't important, but if you want to know what the seven are, and verse 29, and in that one chapter, four times, in the following chapter, three more times, in verse 6, 13, and 22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God's saying something to the church these days. And I look back at times and I recall the messages and I think, okay, Lord, you're taking us somewhere. You're leading us. You're the good shepherd. We're the sheep. We're following. He's leading. Where is he taking us? It doesn't have to be a secret week to week. And I felt the imperative upon me that the next thing we need to do is hear God. Talk about hearing God. Because if he's speaking, we want to hear. If he's saying something, we want to be in tune. Now, most of you, you know, if we talk about tuning in, looking at our age representation this morning, most of us will get it. But do you realize that anybody that's probably under 20 has never had to tune in anything? (laughs) Right? I mean, you just push the button, it goes right to it. There's no fuzz anymore we're dated here okay you know we're going to fine tune something what does that mean that doesn't happen anymore right fine tune we don't have to fine tune anything we just put on the iPod the mp3 thing happens and boom it's clear as a bell you can buy a car you just push a button it searches all the strong stations goes right to them there's no 
stuff anymore. Doesn't happen. How can I hear God? Hearing God. I'm going to give you all the secrets to hearing God's voice today. How's that? Don't you just love messages like that? Somebody says, I'm going to have seven secrets to this and four secrets to that. And they're not secrets. They've been here the whole time. They're here. They're not secrets. God reveals them to us. But I want to talk down just kind of a list of those things that I think would help you and I hear the voice of God. Now, the first thing I want to do is teach you a word. <clears throat> you get to say it with after I I'd say it. Okay, ready? Anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. How many of you know what it means? Anybody know what it means? One. Anthropomorphism. Nobody knows. This is great. You're going to learn something new today. Anthropo. Man. Human being. Morphism. Ah, you would think it was metamorphosis, but no. It's not morphosis. It's morphism, which means uh, that you actually have the quality or state of such a form. Now, just this isn't an English class, so let me be quick. Anthropomorphism is when we attribute human characteristics to non-human entities, such as animals, or especially God. Hearing God. I'm talking, you're listening. Most of you are hearing me. Right? Uh-huh. And you're using something to do that. It's your ears. They work automatically. Isn't that great? When we talk about hearing God, are we assuming that it's going to be the way we normally hear everything else? See, anthropomorphism says that I'm going to use my ear to hear God. How many of you have ever heard the audible voice of God? I would say probably 99.5% of all human beings have never heard the audible voice of God. I can show you in the Bible, there's a huge group, they're called the Israelites, who stood in front of a mountain, Mount Sinai, Mount Oreb, and they stood there and the flame and the smoke came down and the fire and all that. And God said, hey, back off from the mountain so you don't get hurt. And God spoke out of that and they all heard him. And then what did they say? They said to Moses, their leader, we'll make you a deal. You go up there and you talk to him. You come back, say whatever he says to you to us and we'll do whatever you say. But we're not doing that whole fire God out of the mountain thing. Scares us. And they missed a great opportunity because God's desire is to speak individually and intimately with every one of us. It even happened in the New Testament. Jesus is walking along and the baptism happens. There's other places, the transfiguration. And and those moments when the voice of the Father spoke from heaven and Jesus heard it. But others said it thundered. Some said an angel's talking. They weren't, sorry, tuned in to hearing the voice of God. Anthropomorphism says that we're going to attribute to God our attributes so that we can relate to him. Now, fortunately, God, in Philippians chapter 2, came, in the, it says that Jesus came, took on himself the form of a man. Why did God do that? So that we could relate to him. Jesus had ears, Jesus had hands, Jesus had all the form that you have. And Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way you would ever be tempted, and yet he overcame temptation and never sinned. That's why he was a sinless sacrifice when he went to the cross. But we don't always hear God with our ears. 
Does God have ears? Do you ever think about these things? You believe he has ears. That's why you talk to him. So he'll listen. And all through the Bible, I actually pulled up a number of verses here. I, I cried to the Lord with my voice and he heard me from his holy hill. These are all out of the Psalms. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple. My cry came before him even to his ears. They cried out, but there was none to save, even the Lord, even to the Lord, but he didn't answer them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. I cried out to God with my voice, to God, with my voice, and he gave ear to me. I think of Isaiah 59, the Lord's ear is not deaf that he cannot hear us. His arm's not short that he can't save us. So there are lots of scriptures where God has allowed it to be written down that we would think he's got ears. But Jesus said in John chapter 4 that God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Why all this belaboring of God not having ears? Well, maybe he does. Jesus has ears, so God has ears. But can mute people talk to God? And can deaf people hear God? God's bigger than our anthropomorphism. Amen? And so, how can I hear the voice of God. Am I going to hear this way? No, not audible. How do you hear? Many of you here could take this message and take it from here. You would say, this is how God speaks to me. This is how God gets through to me. And when I cry out to God, it doesn't have to hit an ear to be for God to absorb it and understand it and respond to it. He is able to hear a whisper or to hear a cry. But you and I need to train our ears to hear him, not him always hearing us. In 1 Kings chapter 19, God is dealing with Elijah. And he's running from Jezebel after the showdown at Mount Carmel, as we call it. And God says to him, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. Kind of sounds like the Arctic Circle. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. Kind of sounds like Big Bear. And after the earthquake, a fire. This is sounding more like here all the time. But the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, a still, small voice. Another translation says a delicate, whispering voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Can I just use this to help us remove maybe some thoughts that we have concluded that when God speaks, it's got to be rowdy and loud. When God speaks, it's got to be, you know, really earth shattering or filled with mystical spiritual activity that's demonstrated somehow in the physical. 
God comes to Elijah and does all these miraculous kind of things, wind, earthquake, fire, and yet God's not in that, and then he starts to whisper, Elijah. And he recognizes that is the voice of God in the moment. The still small voice. Would you agree that you know, if I gesture like this toward my ears and say, when we're hearing God, this is probably the wrong gesture. Most of the time when we hear God, it's like this. We're gesturing toward our heart, toward the center of our being. When God speaks, we just kind of know it. After you get used to it, you know, the first few times it's something that this is one of the words I'll give you. Here, let me give you a list of words on how to understand hearing the voice of God. This one is by practice. John chapter 10, Jesus said, I'm the shepherd, and the sheep know my voice, and they won't follow another. How do sheep get to know the voice of the shepherd? They spend a lot of time with him. They go where he goes. They listen to what he says. He leads them. He sings with them. He he talks to them. He calls them by name. Jesus goes on to say that when the, when the sheep are in the sheepfold, and if you don't know this illustration, it's a great one, when the shepherds would come in from the fields into a village, there'd be one big sheep pen, and they'd pin, put all the sheep in there together, all the little flocks. And then the shepherds would go eat dinner or do or get the motel for the night or whatever, and then the next morning they would come, and there would be a person guarding the whole sheepfold in the pen, and he would go to the gate, and he would, as he was approaching the pen, he would just be start announcing. Maybe he's calling them by name. Here, little Lucy. Here, Mikey. Uh-huh. Here, Debbie. He's calling his sheep by name. And in the sheepfold, there might be a hundred sheep in there, but only ten of them are his. And another ninety belong to somebody else. But this movement starts in the... And then they open the gate, and the ten sheep that know his voice will come out. The rest will not come out. Jesus said, they know my voice, they'll follow me, and they will not follow another. How does that happen? Happens by practice. You remember the first time God, you thought it was God and he gave you some big thing to do? Some huge miraculous called you to be Billy Graham or something? I remember I was in a prayer meeting in the church on a Tuesday night. And uh, I was kneeling down in this chair and I was praying. I got specific, detailed instructions about leaving to go to Jerusalem. I was, it was huge. It lasted for a long time. You know, you're going to do this. I thought, how am I going to get to go to Jerusalem? I said, I'll, I'll go anywhere for you, Jesus. And I'm praying. And everybody's praying around me. And I go, how am I going to get there? I said, well, you need to, you know, get to the East Coast. And then you're going to get on this boat. And it's going to take you across. And you're going, to, you're going to meet this man. And he's going to tell you about this and that and the other thing. And then you're going to be there. When you, and it sounded like the New Testament to me. It's not like, you know, when you walk in, there'll be a guy carrying a pot of water, follow him and all that, right? And I thought, wow, I'm going to Jerusalem. And I got up and I thought, I better run this past the pastor. And he wasn't there that night, so I went to a little office and I called him at his house. I said, Pastor, I pray. God just called me to go to Jerusalem. And this is what he said. I laid it all out. I said, what do you think? He said, I think you need to go back and pray again. I said, okay, I'm gone. Went back, knelt down in the same chair, in the same position. I said, okay, God, let's go over this again. And then God started talking. And it was a voice that was so distinguished in my spirit that I knew the first one was not God at all. It was some mix of me and the enemy of my soul. Wouldn't that have been great if the Satan could have spoken into my life and got me to believe I was supposed to go to Jerusalem and just get up and leave? Could have ruined my life. Could have drowned me in the Atlantic somewhere. Or maybe I never made it to the East Coast. 
I didn't spend wandering. And God began to train me about his voice. You know, when God starts to speak to you and you start to hear his voice, he's not going to ask you to conquer the world the first time he talks to you. He's going to give you some little things to be obedient to. And that's another word on my list. If we want to understand the voice of God, there has to be a point where we're obedient to what he says. He speaks, and we obey. And he goes, there's an obedient one. He speaks again, a little more responsibility, and we obey. When we disobey, or when we ignore what we're being said, doesn't this happen in our own relationships? If we're talking to somebody, and we they say, we're going to you know, do certain things, and then you say, I'm not going to do that, and you ignore them. Doesn't it produce distance? And the, the communication starts getting a little quieter, a little less often, and we start to drift apart. This can happen in our relationship with the Father. If he says to us, I need you to do this, you just obey. Trust and obey, right? 1 Samuel chapter 15 is a, is a, a re- rehearsal of the event with Saul as king of Israel. Saul was told by Samuel the prophet that he was going to be given victory over another king and that when he had that victory he was supposed to, and this is always hard for us to understand, but nonetheless God says when you, when you conquer that people group, kill everything that has breath. Everything. Animals, men, women, children, everything. Conquer them entirely. And Saul does that, but he keeps all the animals alive. And then he goes and sets up a little altar to himself and starts to say, I'm going to worship God because of the victory, and I'm going to honor God with sacrifices. And Samuel shows up and says, uh, didn't I give you specific instructions from God to destroy all these things? And, and uh, Saul says, yeah, but you know we kept the animals alive. Actually, this is, if you read it, you'll get it this way. He said, the people, he ducked the issue. Of responsibility. So, well, the people said we should keep all these animals alive so we could do a sacrifice. And so now we're, we're doing that. We're getting this altar here and we're doing a sacrifice. And Samuel the prophet says to the king, Does God take delight in sacrifice and offering? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen and to hear God's voice is better than the fat of all these rams. You've made a carnal human decision absolutely contrary to the simple obedience that God asks you to follow. Now, the devastating part of that in that moment, here's an adult king who was chosen by God, given a nation to lead, and he disobeys God in a simple order. And because of that, Samuel says, because you've rejected God, decided to follow yourself, then God has rejected you as being king, and you're going to be replaced. He loses his entire kingdom on a point of obedience, but it wasn't the first time he was called to obey God. It was after a series of those in his whole life. So when you practice hearing the voice of God, put God to the test. He's up for it. He can pass the test. It's okay. You can say, God, I'm believing I'm hearing you. I believe it's, uh, you know, I'm not getting at my ears, but I'm hearing you. And so I'm going to do what you've asked me to do. Now, God, if this isn't you and I go to do it, would you please stop me? Would you intervene? Because... I don't want to end up in Jerusalem if I'm not supposed to be there. How else can we judge what God is speaking to us? By reading this. You know, this will tell us the heart of God. This will tell us the character and nature of God constantly. If, If God was to speak to you in your prayer time, He said, I want you to go across the street and touch your neighbors. They're hurting. You've seen them coming and going. You know things aren't good for them. 
Maybe it's not good for you either, but you know everybody in your neighborhood, and you see them going by, and, and he guys says, I want you to reach out and do something. I want you to take them the proverbial plate of cookies or make them dinner and take it across the street. I just want you to go over and say hi to them and bless them for me. Would you do that? Now, if you go to the book, does that sound like something God would ask of you? Generous, self-sacrifice, love others, reach out, right? You'd say, well, that's probably God because it's like his character here. I'm going to obey that. And then God will use it. Simple obedience is a piece of hearing God. Humility. Humility for me is having a proper assessment of who you are when you stand in front of God. You take a real clear look at yourself before you go in. In the Old Testament, there's an item of furniture in the temple and in the tabernacle called the brazen laver. And the priest was told to come to that. It was just a big pot made out of brass so you could see yourself in it. And around the bottom was a basin that had water in it. And the priest, before he went to minister to God, I'm gesturing that he would have to go around that to get into the altar area, right? And to minister in the in the other important parts of worship of God. But he was to come here first and look into this brazen labor and make sure he was clean. So he would inspect himself. If he wasn't, the water was available there to wash himself, to purify himself before he went into the presence of God. It was a necessary step. And the Bible says that for you and I, this is we're washed by the water of the word. We look into this and it's the mirror of our life. If, if we look into the simple, you know, the Decalogue, the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, and it says, Thou shalt not steal, and you read it, and you just stole something, it's a mirror that tells you you've just broken a commandment of God. And there's a smudge on your life. And so you go to the other scriptures, it's like First John 1, 9, that says, if you, if you sin and you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So the Word is the mirror, and the Word is the remedy. When we look into the law of life, it says it is. It brings to us the purity that we need to approach God. Humility is coming before God and saying, I have, a, have an appropriate evaluation of who I am. I'm not somebody important that should have every access to the throne of the Father. I'm a nobody. The Bible says my righteousness is like filthy rags. I have no cause to come before God on my own merit. There's no open door here for me. I should come in humility. If I was to say this, and I noticed this last night, let's pray. What would you do? I'll show you. you be, we've been trained, even just by watching others. I said, let's pray. We'd, we'd go like this. We would just move. Our body would bow its head. We'd close our eyes. Sometimes we've been told that. Let's bow every head, close every eye. But it's an automatic gesture that we've learned. Why, if, why is that that way? Because we understand we should humble ourselves before deity, before God himself. We humble ourselves. James chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 5, reflections from the Psalms and earlier writings. God is high on his throne, but he regards the lowly. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due season. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Pride is the number one original sin. That is what Satan had when he lifted up himself and said, I'll be like God. I will put my throne above God. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. The five I wills of Satan. The problem with sin, you know, I is in the middle. Every time I get focused here, I'm moving away from humility. And it becomes about me. And God resists the proud. Stillness is a part of hearing the voice of God. It's probably too still in here because some of you look like you could use a nap. I'm putting some of you. This is the first rest you've had all week, I can see. So if it gets any more still, I'm in danger. But simply put, if you're going to hear the voice of God, there has to be a point. Do this with me, would you? Your hands aren't too busy. Use your hands like this. Pull out on those little wings there. There you go. Okay, now go like this. Okay, let's do it again. Okay, now, how many of these are there? And how many of these are there? Is there a message here? Should probably be listening twice as much as we're yapping. Parents, you can use that with your kids. Grandparents, you can use it with your grandkids. There's a message here. You don't learn anything when you're talking. You learn when you're listening. In order to hear the voice of God, you have to still and quiet yourself. You have to shut down the competing voices and the thoughts that are going on. You need to say, shh. Psalm 4, verse 4. says, meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Now there's, I just picked that one because, you know, there's, there's lots of verses you could find that have the word still in it. But still yourself, quiet yourself. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 6, when you go to pray, don't be like the other guys. When you go to talk with God... Part of it is hearing his voice, talking to him and hearing back from him. When you go to do that, go into your closet, close the door, and your father who hears what you're praying in private will reward you in public. We're not after public reward. We're after closet time with God. Closet time is part of hearing his voice. When I look at the word closet, I, I cut it apart. I like playing with words as we did with anthropomorphism. Closet for me says close it. Go in and close it. Anybody ever actually done it? Gone to a closet and put yourself in it? You have. You thought, maybe that's it. <laughs> it's not working. Let me try this. <laughs> you sat in there in the dark thinking, I don't know if this is really it. What is Jesus saying? There's a place where you shut yourself away from everything else and you just get with God. Close yourself in. And when you get in there... If you're like me at all, you have the problem of stilling yourself. Because we're, we're afraid of silence. We've had prayer meetings in the church where even in the middle of a message like this where we say, okay, now for the next three minutes we're just going to be quiet and listen to God. I tell you, for some people that is the hardest three minutes in their life. They just You can see them, they're checking their watch. I already told them it's going to be three minutes. You don't need to check your watch. I'll let you know when it's over. 
but they're nervous about being quiet. And how long is this? Three minutes is a long time when it's quiet. But you have to get the voices, the thoughts, not the voices. I don't follow the voices. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, the, the other thoughts, the traffic, you need to get it calmed down and stilled and say, okay, Lord, I just want to hear your voice, not mine. So I'm going to close my yap and open the other two. And even though I'm not going to hear you with my ears, probably, I need to know that I need to be listening. Stillness. Closet time. When you go before God, you should go in sincerity. Now, there's an old story. Some say it's a wives' tale, and I apologize to you wives. I don't know why we call things that. But it means it's just sort of a folklore or thing that's been handed down about the word sincere, coming from the Latin or even the Spanish, sincera. S-I-N in Spanish means without. Sera is the word for wax. And the story goes like this, that when a man was making a statue and carving out, and it developed a crack or a little fissure in the product, he could take wax and push it into the crack, smooth it off, and then when they painted or covered the work, you, wouldn't, you couldn't tell the crack was there. When I was in Mexico, we were down below Mexico City in, a, in an outdoor market area. And uh, I can see it in my mind, but I'd be hard-pressed. Xochimil, there it is. That's the name of the place, Xochimil. And in Xochimil, they have outdoor markets on the weekends. And people move, come down from Mexico City and they buy plants and pots and all kinds of really festive things. And, and uh, take a ride in these boats, you know, like in the gondolas. They've got this lake and the... They call them lanchas, and you can go in the little lanchitas and have a nice afternoon. So the place is crowded with people, but what they're there mostly to do is pick out pots, because they don't have yards. They only have really, you know, walled-in little city-like apartment-style living. And so, but they can get pots, and they can grow trees and plants and have them in their home and move them around. And so they're there to buy out pots, and there are just pots, clay pots made everywhere. <clears throat> and there's a way to pick them out. You know, the ones that are going to hold water actually have a black substance that's down in the basin or the bottom of the pot, so you know distinctly that it's going to hold water. But there are also pots that are just used for looking at or for decoration. These are ones that didn't make it through the kiln process, right? Or they've got a little crack, and they may have taken wax and put it in the crack and painted over it, and it still looks good, but it's a cracked pot. And so when you're looking for a pot for your plants, you're looking for the sincere ones. You're looking for the sincera pots, the ones that don't have wax that will hold up. And that's the old wives' tale about sincera, or the word sincere. But it works for me, and it works for you this morning, that when we come before God, we don't want to come with our cracks smudged full of wax and trying to look good. We'd rather come, anybody know Patsy Claremont? She's a great speaker. Uh, she wrote a book called Normal's Just a Setting on Your Dryer. You know, she's just kind of a funny gal. She was in prayer one day. She shared the story that she was praying and God showed her this pot. And it was 
just it had broken and been put back together. It was a big pot. And, she, and he asked her, what do you see, Patsy? He says, I see this vase-like pot. And it's just been put back together. It's full of cracks. Now what do you see? And, and a light appeared above the pot and descended into it. And so it was, the light was coming out through all the cracks. He, he, he described that. That's what I see. He said, in the New Testament, there's a verse that says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We have the privilege of allowing God to live in and through our lives, but we're nothing more than cracked pots, earthen vessels. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, and the excellency is of God, not of us. He said, Patsy, this is how it works. He said, I shine through you best in your weakest spots. Where you're most cracked, I shine through in strength. Don't try and wax the holes shut. Don't try and perform something on yourself you cannot do. Come to me with sincerity. Come without wax. Come without filling up your life and trying to look good. Let me deposit my glory inside of your old cracked pot and shine through to the good of others. Sincerity. If you're going to hear the voice of God, don't come with wax. Come in sincera. There are others, and I won't keep you here all day doing this because there are 57 on this list. Just kidding. Really about 10 or 12. Some other things that I would suggest to you. Forgiveness. Repentance. Regularity. And worship. Forgiveness, Jesus taught us to pray when the disciples said, teach us to pray. He said, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us this day. Oh, forgive us this day as we forgive others. Paul writes in the New Testament letters and says, this is how you're to forgive others. Do it in the same way God's forgiven you. Unconditional forgiveness. Forgive others the way God forgives you. He doesn't forgive you. He doesn't bury the hatchet, as we say, leave the handle sticking up. He doesn't keep a list in his pocket just in case you fail again. He can pull it out and say, now listen, we're going back to where we started with all those sins you asked me to forgive you of. He forgets them. And he says to you, if you don't forgive others their sins, then your Father in heaven can't forgive you. Forgiveness is a predisposition that when we pray that prayer, if we actually pray what we call the Lord's Prayer, we're saying before someone sins against us. Think of it. I'm just getting up in the morning. I'm going to pray our Father who art in heaven. And I come down to the point, nobody's sinned against me yet. And I'm saying, Lord, today, forgive me my sins as I forgive others their sins. And then a couple hours later, you're at work and somebody sins against you. And you say, oh, I'm predisposed to forgive. I've already decided two hours ago that this was the moment when I would be sinned against. Now it's my opportunity to to forgive because this is what I want from the Father. This is an hour from now when I have the problem, he'll forgive me. A predisposition in our heart that says forgiveness is the rule of life. How many marriages would do much better? How many marriages would not fail? If this was a component part, a predisposition to forgiveness. Repentance. The psalmist said, if I regard sin in my heart, then the Lord won't hear me. He'll close his ear to me. 
if I regard sin. Repentance is agreeing with God about the sin in your life. And if there's sin and you repent of it, it opens the heavens. Psalm 34.18 says that God is close to those who are broken in spirit, contrite of heart. That we are actually sorry for our sin. That we are actually in need of forgiveness and we know that he can provide it. And so we ask for it and we say, Lord, I repent. I don't want to live like this anymore. Forgive my sin. Come into my heart. Make me a new person. And according to his word, he does. Regularity. Psalm 5, verse 3. Early in the morning, Lord, this is what you're going to hear. I'm going to be talking to you. Regularity. Daniel, chapter 6, verse 10. There's an edict that's made in, in by the rulership in Daniel's time. That, that it's a... It's a contrived thing, but nonetheless, Daniel's aware of it. And the law is put in place that anybody that prays to any other god than this one, this idol, in the next 30 days goes to the lion's den. And this is really a pretty amazing response by Daniel. If you want to look it up, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, Daniel. Page 1243. It's actually a plot against Daniel's life. It says, therefore, King Darius, or Darius, however you like it, signed the written decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. He had a regularity about his worship. He had a regularity about coming before the Father. And, and he did it at least these three times a day. And even though there was a law that was written that says you can't do it today, you can't do it for the next 30 days, he said, well, now that I know that's done, I'll go home and pray. Because this is my custom. This is my manner. This is who I am. I have a regularity in my life that is a, not just a religious exercise, but there's a constancy about how I listen for the voice of God. It's regular. I make sure I have time to do it. Aren't the hardest days that you live out the days where you rush off? And you don't take time to have that Psalm 5 experience. Oh Lord, in the morning, when I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. I apologize to any of our internet listeners. But early in the morning, it comes. Three times a day, it comes. How do I hear his voice? I practice and have regularity. And worship. It's amazing to me that we come together. I asked uh, one of my friends here last week. I said, how do you like the singing part of what we do at church? We get together, we sing a lot. And I thought, boy, it must be hard on those who don't have a voice. Have to come and sing all the time. I tell people that if you got a good voice, it's your chance to bless him with the gift he gave you. And if you have a bad voice, it's your chance to get even. Because he's listening. And, uh, you know, if you're loud enough, he may just adjust it for you. I think that's what he did for me. And you learn to sing in church and it gets better. Huh? A lot of those gospel singers from the south where they learned to church was, sing was in the church choir. And uh, God tuned them up. Because <clears throat> he said, i got to listen to this all the time. I'm going to sharpen that one, make this one a little better, give that a little sweeter ring to that one. That would help. Because she is always singing, that lady. Don't take God for how I make him to be at all times. 
But worship. We come and we sing. Why do we do it? Have you ever asked before you walk through the door, why are we going to sing six songs today? Because we believe God hears us. He's listening. Has he got ears? God's a spirit. Those that worship us worship in spirit and in truth. And at some point in that worship set of music that we provide, and these guys really pray about the songs they're going to use and the themes that are going to be involved. And our hope is that somewhere during that worship singing musical part, haven't you found this to be the case? You're singing the words. You've got the melody going. And your, your words and your mouth are doing one thing and your thoughts and your heart are doing something else. And you might be singing the words, but there's tears streaming down your face. Or you're jumping up and down with joy because God just broke through and spoke to you. And it didn't come through your ear gate. It came through your spirit. And we try to provide a moment in worship. We call it worship. Singing. What happens when we sing is that we're collecting our body, our soul, our spirit. We're aligning all of them and we're making them do something at one time that honors God. And it's with this song that we're singing. And somewhere in the middle of that song, our hope is that God will break through and speak directly to you. And you'll go home with a revelation of who He is and what His heart is for you. I do it. I want it every week. I'm addicted to worship in the congregation. And if we're going to hear His voice, then we have to be worshipers. And when we do, God speaks. And you don't need ears to hear it. Father, I thank you this morning that these things come by your grace. Lord, I'm reminded by your word that basically I'm a failure. (laughs) And that my ability to please you is pretty small on my own merit. Lord, I'm going to speak on behalf of those here this morning that that is our case. For your word tells us that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. Our best day is still like a dirty old rag. And so we thank you that you have provided your grace to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming, taking our sins in your own body, nailing them to the cross, and then overcoming them by coming out of that grave. And giving us the promise of eternal life in you. If we'll place our trust in you. Lord, you've made it clear that you want us to be able to hear your voice, respond in obedience, in faithfulness, in relationship. That you want us to walk with you on a daily basis. Truly hearing and understanding your heart. And operating by your spirit. And Father, I would pray this morning that in this room or even if there are those who would listen to this message at another time if there are those who have not yet surrendered their heart to you Jesus that you would right now call them to yourself and they would hear your voice as it were saying to them today is the day of salvation don't harden your heart surrender to the lover of your soul And I would speak to this congregation this morning while we're praying and ask you, do you need to open your heart to Jesus? Do you need to make 
a commitment to him today? Have you understood that he died in your place so that you could be free of the penalty and the punishment of your sin and that you could have new life in him? If you have, I want you to pray this simple prayer with me. And if you would, in church, you could pray with us together out loud. Help us. Let's pray together and say, Lord Jesus, forgive my sin. I acknowledge today that I'm a sinner and I cannot save myself. Thank you, Jesus, for being the Savior. I invite you into my life right now. I repent and I turn away from those things that are displeasing to you. And I commit my heart to you. I accept you as my Savior. And I want you to be the Lord of my life from this day on. Help me to live for you. Train me to hear your voice and follow you every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Father, I pray for these who have expressed for the first time a desire for you to grant them the gift of eternal life through salvation in Jesus, your Son, that you would make this absolutely, unmistakably real to them today. Lord, that you would put in them a hunger to know you that cannot be satisfied by anything other than pursuing and seeking you. Lord, I pray that they'll be uneasy when they find themselves back in the old way of life, beginning to practice things that have been displeasing to you, that, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, you'll bring conviction to their hearts that this is the point of salvation and change for them. That you'll give them strength to walk with you and friends who will help them. And that the Word of God will be alive and active in them.